Take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, where Paul exhorts us by the mercies of God because of the mercy God has shown to us that we present our bodies a living sacrifice to Him and that we be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And everything that Paul is going to say in the remainder of this chapter is based on those first two verses. In other words, he says, if you do this, here's what it looks like. Um... Uh, if we as believers are committed to the exhortation that we find in the first two verses, how do we who are having our minds renewed and our lives transformed think about life as we live it? See, we as believers are different. We are called to be different. We are called out of the world. We are not to think like the world thinks. We are not to react like the world reacts. We are not to treat one another like the world would treat one another. I mean, you've all heard the expression, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And you know what? That is exactly right. It is. It's every man for himself. But in the church, it should not be that way. It's not that way. It can't be that way. So specifically, how do we have our minds, who have our minds renewed, how do we think about ourselves? How do we think about other believers? How do we think about the gifts that God has given to us? And this is what Paul is, is, is pointing at here. Uh, from, Rome, from chapter 12 through 16, Paul gives specific application to everything he said in chapters 1 through 11. Now, I think it's wonderful the way that Paul puts all this together and then gives the application. Paul must have read the Puritans because that's how they did it. Really, nobody got that joke? The Puritans read Paul. Okay. Well, that one fell flat. Anyway. <laughs> Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. How do you think about yourself? This is what Paul says, when, when you have presented your body to, to God as a living sacrifice, and you begin to not be conformed to the world, but you begin the renewing of your mind, how you think about yourself will change. Uh, Paul uh, he advi advises us here both positively and negatively. Uh, you know, if you go over to chapter 14, the first four verses, let's, let's read that right quick. Chapter 14, Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment or opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who eats is weak eats vegetables only. 
The one who eats must not view the one who does not eat with contempt. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who eats. God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So evidently, there were some there in Rome when Paul wrote this letter who had kind of an uppity view of themselves. They thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And so Paul here, he says that uh, the, open, the opening verses there in chapter 14 show this. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is the universal tendency of the human race. We all, as in our natural state, in our Outside of Christ, we have a tendency to think that the world revolves around me. Seriously, is there anybody here that's never done that? All of us have. And Paul says that when, when we come to present ourselves and begin to be renewed, then our view of ourselves will begin to change. But thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought is the universal tendency of the human race. Our old nature loves to overthink itself. We like to think we are much more important than we really are. I've seen people like this in churches. I remember I had a guy in a church one time got upset with me and he and his wife were going to leave. And he told me, he said, you know, this church is going to die when I leave. Those were his exact words. This church cannot survive without my wife and I. They'd been there like 60 years and all this. And yeah, when he came back about six months and saw that the church had increased in, number, in, in, in people there by about 50%, he was shocked. But you see, that's the tendency we have. We, we always begin to think more highly of ourselves than what we should. And our old nature loves to overthink itself. And this can come in two ways. Primarily, it is that of self-elevating braggart. Like the man I just talked about. There are people like this. The person who tells you how smart they are, how much they have done, how, much, how, how important they are to, to the, the church these are the kind of people that Paul says, when you have a renewing of your mind, this changes. But then the other form of overestimation is a little more subtle. Uh, Dr. Larton Lloyd-Jones tells a story about how he was riding on a train. And when he got off the train, the man came to take his baggage and he recognized him. OK, now, if you don't know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is, he's one of the he is probably one of the greatest expositors of the Bible in the history of the church. But anyway, as he got off, this man recognized him and he said, oh, Dr. Jones, he said, I am so wonderful to meet you. He said, I love your preaching. He said, yeah, I am just excited to meet you. He said, I'm just an old lowly baggage handler. You know, I'm, I'm just a nobody. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I looked at that man, turned around, walked away, straight away from him, never said a word to him. He said, I knew what he wanted. He wanted me to say, oh, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're important. You know, you're just important. That's what he wants. And see, the, the, Paul's point is this takes two forms. You have those who say, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. And we have those that say, oh, look at me. You tell me how great I am. That's exactly how it works. And so Paul says we need to have a right view of ourselves. When someone acts like 
like, like these, the expectation is that we will correct him when they treat and talk about themselves like they're nobodies. But how are we to think about ourselves? Well, Paul gives the positive part there in the middle of verse, of verse 3. He says, but to think so as to have sound thinking. But to think so as to have sound thinking or sober judgment, some says. And Paul says, as God has allowed it to each a measure of faith. That word measure is better translated standard. It's better translated standard. The idea is that God has allotted to every believer a standard of faith by which we are to measure ourselves. Anybody know what that measure is? Christ. It's Christ. You see, I'm not thinking right when I start comparing me to you. Or when you start comparing me, you to yourself to me. And, and you know, I, I have had people tell me in the, for, in, in the past, you know, we, we point out a sin in somebody's life and they say, well, I know I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You see what the problem with that is? When I stand before God, so-and-so is not the standard by which I will be judged. Christ is. Now, Paul's point here is this. God has given us the standard, and, and, and the standard is Christ. And we are not to measure ourselves by other people. We are to measure ourselves by looking at Christ. Do you understand that it is virtually impossible to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think when He is the standard? When I think, well, you know, at least I don't have a lot of sin. Jesus said, well, I didn't have any. You know, well, at, at least I, you know, sacrificed myself for my family. And Jesus said, I did it for my enemies. You see, it, it can go on and on. He is the standard. And when we, when we live, uh, look at that standard, Him as our standard, it's impossible for us to rightly, uh, to highly think of ourselves in that way. Now, now I want you to miss, don't miss something here. Paul says there in verse 3, For through the grace given to me that I say to among you not to think more highly of himself. You see, we are to think highly of ourselves. You know why? We're created in the image of God. Man is the crowning pinnacle of God's creation. We are to think highly of ourselves. And so Paul says, but don't think more highly of yourselves than what we are to think. Uh, the, the thought chain in the book of Romans is very thought-provoking. If you look at verse one, chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 11 and verse 32, we have profound theology. And in chapter 11, verses 33 and 36, we have profound doxology. And here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have profound dedication. And in chapter 12 and verse 3, we have one of the identifying marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ. You know what it is? Humility. Humility. Now listen, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. See the difference? And so uh, there is a, you know, how are we thinking about ourselves today? Uh, <clears throat> those, uh, you know, when we think about who we are in Christ, we are children of the living God. 
You know, John, 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now think about this. As, as Adrian Rogers used to say, have you ever realized the fact that as a believer, you're a royal blue blood? We are children of the king of the universe. Peter tells us that we are a kingdom of priests. So we are somebody in Christ. And that's the only place that we are somebody is in Christ. He is our standard. So how do you think about yourself today? Where do you see yourself? Do, do, do you look at yourself as saying, this church couldn't go on without me. I hope they know how lucky they are to have me as a pastor. Now, y'all know I don't really think that, right? Hey, I expect to get fired every Monday morning, so. <laughs> but that's what Paul's saying. Think rightly, but the only way we can think and have a, a, a right estimation of ourselves is when we look at ourselves in Christ. And with him as our standard. All right, look at verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The word as there in verse 4 links it back to, chapter, uh, to verse 3. When I think rightly about myself... I'm going to think rightly about you. I will correctly see you the way that you did that I should when I begin to look at myself in the correct way. Uh, we are the body of Christ. We are eternally linked together. You understand that? You know, I, I know there are believers that, that don't like me, but they might as well get used to me because we are stuck for eternity. You understand that? So, might as well start liking me. <laughs> Paul's illustration here in verses 4 and 5, it underscores three characteristics about the body of Christ. It talks about our unity, our diversity, and our mutuality that we have. We derive our spiritual life from the same source. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If the, if the, if the uh, branches are not connected to the vine, there's no life. They're dead. But if we are connected to it, then you and I derive our, our life from the same source. Um, and our unity is the, the subject of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Turn with me over to John 17. This is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. In John 17, Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he takes the time and he begins to pray. This is called the high priestly prayer of Christ. He's praying for his own, that's you and me. And if you look there in chapter 17, verse 21, he says that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity. 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, did you notice how many times Jesus prayed and said that we might be one? Hey, listen, despite what you will hear out in the world today, men and women are different. And if you haven't figured that out yet, just wait. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing about that. God made us different so that he could make us one. Understand that? Every one of us in this church are different. We, we, we have a diversity here. And we have a unity here. We all uh, attain to the same thing. And while there exists real unity, and that unity is this. You and I have the same goal. At least I hope you do. We want to see God glorified. We want to see Christ lifted up. We want to see the, the nations come to know Christ. There is a unity among us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. United by blood. You understand that? We are united by blood. And so there is to be unity. But this will only happen when I present myself to Christ as a living sacrifice. When I start listening to the world and start renewing my mind through the word of God. Then I will begin to understand that every single believer is just like me. And I'm just like them. In the fact that we are unified in this. But while there exists that unity, there is also diversity. Paul says, all members do not have the same function. God's glory is revealed in the diversity of his people. If you go all through the Bible, <clears throat> you read Paul's letters. And in every single letter Paul wrote, you see Paul. In in Peter. Peter, you read, you read Second Peter. Say, hey, that were there to be to to to, to uh, be diversified, but God uses those people as they are, and this means that we measure ourselves by Christ's standard, but we are still going to be who I am. I mean, that's a wonderful thing, by the way. You understand that? It's a wonderful thing when we do this. There is a that we must always be careful to allow other people to be themselves. God, I'm going to use my wife as an example. I am very much an introvert. You can put me in a room full of 20 people that I don't know and leave me there for two hours. And when I leave, I will not have said probably two words. You put her in a room with 20 people, she doesn't know, and in two hours she will know their names, their birthdays, who they're married to, and if they're saved. Now, I don't say that to make fun of her. I'm glad she's that way. That's a wonderful thing. But you see, what I mean is we are different as night and day. She likes the opera. I like the opera. I like to say that one. <laughs> I love to watch Looney Tunes cartoons. She shakes her head at it. She used to shake her head at the Three Stooges till she started laughing. Now she don't laugh anymore. Now she just enjoys them like she's supposed to, like a safe person should. But listen, we are all different. God made us different so that he could make us one. Tim has a personality that's different from everybody in here, and that's good. We don't need another personality like that. 
<laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> Every one of us, God has taken us, and, and when we have presented our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice, when I am being renewed in my mind, I will recognize the fact that we are united by being one in Christ, but that you are still you and I'm still me. And the thing is, I will allow you to be you and you will allow me to be me. You understand that? And that's what Paul's getting. Paul is, is building everything here off those first two verses. And this is all. And, and as he goes on to the, you know, the, the remainder of the book or the letter to the Romans is all Paul building off of everything he said in the first 11 chapters. He say, he's saying, this is how you live out what you have talked about. So we, we must not stress this, this, this diversity without grasping the truth of our mutual, mutuality. Paul says we are members one of another. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. When one member hurts, we all hurt. Do you do that? When you get an email that says so-and-so is having surgery or so-and-so is real sick, does that affect you personally, especially if it's from this congregation? It should. Just like if your parent called and said, hey, your sister's had a terrible thing. She's in the hospital. That would affect you. It should affect you the same way here if, someone, if I called you and said, hey, something's happened to Cindy and I need you to pray. You should say, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to pray because I love her. You understand how that, that's what Paul's getting at here? The mutuality of all of us. Um, the church is no place for lone rangers. This is why we must gather together for corporate worship. Now, I was wondering how I was going to bring this into this. So I'm going to just bring it in right here and say this. You show me a person that tells me that they are a saved Christian who never attends, is not a part of a local body of believers, and I'll show you a liar. You cannot do it. You cannot live the Christian life apart from gathering together with your fellow believers. You can't do it. It's impossible. So Paul says <clears throat> that one of the reasons that we gather, that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And he says this, especially as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The day of the return of Christ. Let me ask you something, folks. Do we see that day quickly approaching? Then should we not be gathering together? And so Paul says, if I present myself a living sacrifice and I have being stopped being conformed by the world and I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, one of the things that's going to happen is I'm going to love my, bro my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to want to join a local church and be a part of that church and be active in that church, which is what we're going to go to next. If you look here in verses 6 through 8, Paul says, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy in agreement with faith or service in the serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul here, every believer, if you are a believer in Christ this morning and you the moment that you got saved you need to understand this you were gifted by the Holy Spirit with some gift some have more than one 
But everybody has at least one. What are those gifts for? What are the gifts of the Spirit for? Now, I want to tell you now, Paul here, he, he mentions several of the gifts. But Paul's focus here is not on the gifts. He does that over in 1 Corinthians. But when he talks about these gifts, what is the purpose of us, uh, of whatever gift that God has given? God has gifted me with the ability to preach and teach, but that's not for me. I'm not to sit at home and look in a mirror and preach and teach to myself. It's for you. Whatever gift you have, it's not for you. It's for everybody else. You know, we, we need to understand that we all uh, must strive to, to use these gifts to be uh, a blessing to each other. And Paul here, he, he tells us how to use seven of these gifts. He talks about prophecy. Now here, prophecy is the communication of revealed truth in a manner that convicts and builds up those who hear it. Okay? He talks about service. Now, this word service right here that Paul uses is the same word we get our word deacon from. And Paul says, uh, you know, it's the one who serves is to exercise his gift to the fullest. He talks about teaching. Now, teaching differs from prophecy in that it instructs the mind, whereas prophecy is addressed to move the heart and the will. Okay, now I'm going through these quickly because I got I to gotta, I gotta bring them all here to where I'm trying to get. He talks about exhortation. This means to come alongside and encourage. This can include uh, warning and advice and counsel and encouragement. Actually, the word exhortation literally means to prop up, to prop somebody up. He talks about giving. This refers to our motive in giving. Uh, our, we are to give simply out of love. I think about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. As, as it says that, that they went out and they sold some property and they came and gave the money to the church. And Peter asked them, says, you know, Ananias comes in first. And he says, here, Peter, this is, this is the money that I got for the property. And Peter says, now, is that all the money you got for the property? He says, that's it. And he said, Ananias, he says, you have just lied to God. And Ananias fell down dead. In a few minutes, his wife comes in. She says, hey, Peter, here's the money. He said, now, is that all the money you got for the property? And she says, yes. And he says, you have just lied to God. And the one who just carried your husband out are going to carry you out. Now, now, let me clarify something here. Peter didn't care how much they gave. They didn't have to give any of it. When, when he said, Ananias, is this all you got? Ananias could have said, well, no, but I kept some for that. Peter would have said, okay, that's fine. But he lied about it. But the thing is, why were they giving? Why, why did they want Peter to think that they were giving everything they had? Their motive was to build themselves up. Prideful. And so when we give, that's why the Bible says we are to give with a cheerful heart. You ever heard that expression, give till it hurts? Well, we shouldn't do that. We should give till it feels good. Because for the believer, everything we have belongs to God. And say, so he talks about giving. He talks about leadership. Leaders should not be casual or callous towards others. Um, he talks about mercy, aiding the poor, tending to the sick. And now, now here's what Paul's getting at here. <clears throat> These are gifts 
that are given. But Paul's focus here is not on the gifts, but how we use the gifts. Because you see, if I present myself a living sacrifice, and I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind, then when I prophesy, I'm going to do it with everything I got. When I teach, I'm going to do it with everything I've got. When I am uh, giving exhortation to someone, I'm going to give it with everything I got. When I give, I'm going to give with all I've got. When, I, uh, when there's leadership involved, I'm going to lead like Christ himself is my boss. When we show mercy, aiding the poor, he said, I'm going to do this cheerfully. I'm going to do this with a glad heart. Because you see, presenting yourself a living sacrifice and not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, simply allows you and I to be who we are in Christ. By the way, what's the standard? Christ. Did you know that when Jesus gave, he gave with a cheerful heart and he gave all he had? When Jesus shows mercy, he shows mercy with everything he has. When that, when that publican knelt there, smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God said, done. Just simply done. When I came to Christ, recognized my need of a Savior, saw my sin for what it was, ran to Christ and said, Lord, forgive me. He said, done. Let me tell you what he didn't do. And he still does not do. You know, this may come as a shock to you, but I still sin. Man, y'all are just not with it today, are you? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but you know that even today I can go to Christ and say, Lord, I have committed that sin again. And he says after a while, and you can understand this, right? Now, look, Bobby, this is getting a little old. How many times am I going to have to? Is that what he does? No. You know what he says when I say, Lord, I have committed that sin again? He says, what sin? You mean the one that I've thrown as far as the east is from the west, never to remember anymore? And I say, Lord, forgive me. And he said, done. Isn't that wonderful? So he is our standard. So let me ask you something. If I offend you, what should be your response? Mercy. If I steal everything you've got, you know, we're going we're gonna to start a new study tonight on the five solas. And uh, tonight's going to be just kind of a long introduction to it. But I want to tell you something that I, I found out. That word grace, we are saved by grace alone. You know what grace is? We say it's God's unmerited favor. But you know that's really not true. Because you see, when we say that grace is just merely God's unmerited favor, that makes it sound like you and I are neutral participants. And that's not true. You see, if, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm really in need, can I have $100? I'm 
and I give you $100. Well, you didn't do anything to earn that, but neither did you do anything not to. So I didn't really show you grace. But what if you come to me after having kidnapped and murdered my wife and say to me, Pastor, I'm really in need. Could you help me out? And I give to you, that's grace. You understand that? What is our standard? Christ. So if I offend you, you offend me, and we say, I'm going to show you grace. You see, God said, never will I remember it anymore. So Paul here in these eight, in the, from chapter verse three through verse eight is pointing out to us. He says, look, you, you go to God, you present yourself a living sacrifice. You begin to be renewed by your mind in your mind. And you begin to live like Christ. These are seven beautiful gifts that he mentions here. And if Paul's exhortation were followed, think how beautiful this church would be. Every church would be if we followed what he gives us here. But all these gifts are to be exercised out of love and out of a pure heart with Christ himself as our standard. How is your thinking today? Are, you, are we thinking rightly about ourselves according to the standard we have learned in knowing Christ? Are we thinking too highly of ourselves? Do you, do you, do you often compare yourself to other Christians? You know, and, and here's what I found. When we compare ourselves to other Christians, it's usually not in the sense that we say, Oh, I wish I could be like them. When we compare ourselves to other Christians, it's more along the lines of, wow, at least I'm not that bad. That's what we do. But we shouldn't do either. And when we have a right understanding of who we are in Christ and our mind has been renewed, then we will have a right understanding of ourselves. Are we thinking rightly about other believers? Is this body a reality to you? You know, last, last Sunday, Cindy and I weren't here. Now, we were with other believers. Well, I say they are. They were Presbyterian. I guess they are. I'm, that's a joke. They were. But you know what? I missed y'all. I really did. I, did I, I didn't miss just preaching. I missed you. I know. Don't have to say it. Go ahead say it. No. <laughs> Are we thinking too highly of ourselves? How do we think about other believers? Is this body a reality to you? And let me ask you something. What is your gift and are you using it? Are you using with everything you have the gift that God has given to you? Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. <clears throat> Why do you think he had to say that? Why did, he say, why did he have to say, do not be conformed to this world? That's our natural tendency. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may approve what the will of God is. That which is good and pleasing and perfect. You cannot adequately 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind if you are not constantly, okay? Listen, you may think, well, preacher, that's going too far. But I want to tell you something, folks. If you are not constantly staying in the Word of God, reading it, meditating on it, hearing it preached, and hearing it taught, and you say, all the time? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you have a desire to be like Christ? Then all the time's not enough. What are you doing with, are you using the gift that God has given you? And, and you know, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> there is no gift higher than another one. God gifted you exactly what he knew he wanted you to have. And that gift is just as important as any other gift. What if, what if the only gift we had, what if I was the only one in here that had the gift of preaching and I stand up here and all I do is preach, but you don't have a gift and you don't ever do anything. You know what a wreck we would be? But there are some who have the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, the gift of mercy, the gift of giving. And Paul's point here is, when you have been transformed by the renewing of your mind, all these gifts, you will, you will use them at every opportunity as much as you can. And when you do it, you know, you won't say, oh, somebody needs help again. I never get any rest. No, when you know somebody needs help, you're going to run as fast as you can and say, what can I do? You know why? Because you love them. Because Christ loves them. So let's look at where we are. How do you see yourself? How do you see others around you? And what are you doing with that gift God's given you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. Oh, God, we thank you for who we are in Christ. And Father, may we, each and every one of us here this morning, be diligent to present our bodies a living sacrifice. May we be diligent to be renewed, transformed by the renewing of our mind, beginning to think like Christ by learning of Christ, staying in your word, staying in prayer. Father, may we learn to love one another, recognizing that together we are the body of Christ, that we would laugh with one another, we would cry with one another, we would rejoice with those who rejoice and sorrow with those who sorrow. Oh, Father, help us to fully understand the importance of using the gifts that you've given to us, whatever they may be. Father, recognizing that the ultimate goal of all our gifts is your glory.